Hey everybody, Kat Bailey here. Just a quick housekeeping note. At the top of the show, I say that I am going to be interviewing director Atsushi Hashimoto of I Am Setsuna during the interview segment of the show. That's not actually true. Unfortunately, the audio quality of that interview just isn't suitable for a podcast. Uh, I was interviewing him in a room with tons of echo and a really loud air conditioner in the background, which is pretty much all you can hear. But I will get that interview transcribed and posted on the website sometime soon. In the meantime, I have an interview with Brian Hines, who was nice enough to come on the show. He is the director of Tyranny, Obsidian's new RPG, and we talk a lot about all of the decisions that they make with that game. So don't be confused when I am talking about I Am Sensina. All right. Let's get going. The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and the topics this week, we're going to be talking about Salt and Sanctuary, which I believe came out last week here in GDC. The 2D Dark Souls Alike, which was made by, I believe, the dishwasher uh, uh, creator um, who made dishwasher for the, the 2D action game for the Xbox 360. And then a little later, we're going to have an interview, which I recorded during GDC, with the director of I Am Setsuna. So that's going to be pretty neat. But before we get there, I'm just going to have a little bit of a roundtable discussion this time. We're going to have two guests on the podcast. First is our returning staff writer, Nadia Oxford. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you. And also returning guest, John Learned. Hello, fellow Blood God believers. Yes, <laughs> we're all on Team Blood God. He's watching you. Though yeah. in an interview that I just recorded, which I lost, sad face, um, I was talking about Team Fireball versus Team Lightning. Uh, you know, like when you have a mage in an RPG and it's like some people go for lightning, right? Because they want the lightning that like bounces around everybody. And every and some people like fireballs because they explode, right? I mean, it's just fun to watch your enemies explode into fire. And I'm like wholeheartedly on team fireball. And I, in fact, I'm all for starting the team fireball political party. I think that we can get fireball nominated for president of the United States uh, I, and my secret agenda is just basically, here you go, voters, have some Fireball whiskey, Team Fireball all the way. Are you guys on Team Fireball? Yes, even though I am a Canadian, I can I can deal with that platform. Well, that's never stopped Ted Cruz. What about that's you, true. John Learned? I'm a Fireball Lightning Bolt moderate. What? So um, I do like to see my, my foes burned before me, but, um, you know, a little bit of crackling lightning ash is is always it's treated me right so far and i'm I'm not a really comp big complainer but you know as far as salt and sanctuary goes there is a team fireball versus kind of team lightning schools of magic too so oh my god are you it, doing a segue was that a all, segue john it all comes together in a segue was that a yes. unauthorized segue into the discussion? <laughs> well, the you know when you when you're possessed by the blood god and he speaks through you, uh, he steps he, he steps over the host's bound. So sorry about that. 
You should introduce me to the blood god we've never met, but I heard that he's a real nice guy. Your show, man. Come on. You know the blood god. <laughs> oh, we just I just use his likeness and his name <laughs> and pay him a certain royalty. Yeah, his lawyers are going to come after you. You uh, pay up. All right. So, indeed, let us talk about the Sultan Sanctuary, which, as I already said, is the 2D Dark Souls alike. Um, I first noticed it at PAX Prime a couple years ago. It really immediately attracted me, and I was like, I will keep an eye on this game because, hey, 2D Dark Souls. So I have made it as far as the second boss in the game, which is the, uh, I forget what her name is, but she has a lot of swords, and they're like flipping all over the place. The Queen of Smiles. Yeah, Queen of Smiles. Uh, She killed me uh, not long before this podcast, but which is unfortunate because I used a whole bunch of um, my holy attacks on her. But I will probably take another crack. Uh, Nadia, how far did you end up getting? Uh, I believe I got to the uh, Krakenworm. 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 In the castle. Sounds lovely. And John, you're on your second run? Yeah, I pretty much inhaled this game last week. So I... I did a, a run, and instead of going through trying to go through New Game Plus, I just rolled another character and, and have been going through that. So I'm maybe two-thirds of the way through my second run right now. Nice. John, you are insane. John is also our Dark Souls, like resident Dark Souls fan, so he's kind of speaking from that perspective. But I'm going to start with you, Nadia, because you aren't, you don't seem super familiar with Dark Souls, and so you're kind of a your your outlook on Salt and Sanctuary was interesting. Having never played Dark Souls or that kind of format, like what was your kind of opinion of Salt and Sanctuary? Uh, well, I really, really enjoy it. Um, and I like challenging platformers to begin with, but Salt and Sanctuary, uh, from my perspective, it's difficult, yes, but it's also very fair. The enemies can hit you pretty darn hard, but you can hit them back just as hard. And... Um, you know, I know that like Bloodborne and, and Souls and whatnot is, is part of the homework that you've given me, Kat, but uh, haven't got to it just yet. But it's funny because I've always been a little bit intimidated by Souls, I guess, because, you know, it's, it's a hard game and uh, I could probably do it. But when you take away one of the dimensions, like with Salt and Sanctuary, I feel a little bit more at ease, especially since the, the game has like a lot of Metroidvania elements and I'm huge into Metroidvanias. So it really kind of combines a lot of things that I like. I am totally on your side on that front. I realized that when you took away the third dimension and essentially turned it into a platformer, I immediately felt a lot more comfortable because I understood yeah. those. I understood the language of that genre just implicitly, yes, exactly. right? Like I, it's all committed to muscle memory. Uh, I don't have to really ha- learn how to move uh, once you kind of master the role and the the shield because I use my shield a lot. Uh, John mentioned how he uses magic. I don't use magic at all. I just use, uh, I'm a hunter. I use a whip because, you know, Castlevania and I've gotten that itch. Oh yeah. I was also playing as the hunter. Um, yeah. I was playing with the, so, you know, you have the crossbow. I yeah. had a, I had a bow with like the fire arrows and then also I was upgrading my whip a whole bunch. And you said Castlevania. I, no, that actually makes a lot of sense. My first thought was actually Indiana Jones, but yeah, that works too. Both of these work pretty well. Uh, and the whip is really good because it has really good reach and it, it goes through multiple enemies. As a, yes. And so it doesn't feel like you're committing to your attacks. It's yes. fast. It really is. Yeah, it comes out really fast. So I like kind of quickly came to liking the whip. Uh, John, what was your class? 
Uh, the first one I did was, um, okay, I go through these games in like the most meat-headed way possible for my first time. So it's it's usually like pro-heavy tank. So the first time I went through it, I did, um, I wanted to start a sword and shield build, but it just kind of devolved into two-handed sword. And yeah. I found that to be pretty agreeable. And so for my second run, I try to go with the mage. And early mage is really hard. Like yeah, really, really hard. Um, I mean, I I guess we're maybe getting too far ahead, but like there's really not a whole lot of like really, really good weapons that scale with magic early on. Um, and the game is part of the charm of these games is is like the Souls games too, is that they they they're pretty obtuse with like, okay, this is how you forge weapons. This is how you find new new stuff. So it's not easy finding weapons that really work. And there's not a whole lot of spells in the early game that really make it worth it without kind of a lot of level grinding. Or at least that's what I found at this point. But now that I'm like past the halfway point of the game, though, I'm now that I've like forged a weapon that scales really well with my magic stat and I've gotten more more spells and have leveled, I'm pretty much like bulldozing anything in front of me so i guess that's kind of the trade-off i found the early game with a with a heavy melee class not too rough on me and the later game was was kind of tough but the uh early game for the mage is it was night and day different really hard early really easy now how many how many hours is this i put 20 hours a little less than 20 hours into my first run but i was is thorough as i possibly could be and then yeah i'm at the point i'm at right now i'm i'm i think maybe just past like the seven or eight hour mark the seven or eight hour mark all right you really did bulldoze that game if you managed to knock <laughs> it out like knock out a 20 hour game in like less than a week that's pretty impressive i didn't i i I took the week off of work to do other stuff and this game just kind of <laughs> showed up and i'm like all right i'll play this for a while and then 20 hours later so this is what I will say. Uh, the first time I started playing Salt and Sanctuary, and obviously I've not played it nearly as much as you guys, I was I was initially a little bit disappointed. And I think I was initially a tiny bit disappointed because I didn't really like the character art. And I, I absolutely agree. <laughs> like I yes, just kind of yeah. yeah, I don't know, like they're these little cupid doll people. So I was like, oh, I, I don't like I don't like the stylization here. And so, I mean, maybe that's a crappy thing to hold against a game, but when you're looking at, against, at the character art all game, and it doesn't really match the backgrounds super well. Yeah, I like, that kind of that bounced off me, too. Uh, it doesn't annoy me in a terrible way. I kind of find the, uh, the character designs unique and in a compelling way. I yeah. don't mind them. But the way they do kind of stand out from the background, I can totally understand the complaint there, especially since, to be honest with you... Uh, I could stand to have the action lightened up a couple of shades. I don't have the best eyesight in the world. Yeah, and my immediate thought was, all right, so it's Dark Souls with QP people, okay. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a weird puppet show. It is the, the deadliest puppet show on earth. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, it's a small team, so I kind of give them a pass oh, on yeah, that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But uh, it's. On the other hand, uh, Darkest Dungeon is also a small team, and yeah. they have amazing art. Like, if you can get a really good artist, it can make up for so many things. And I don't want to. I think actually, Salt and Sanctuary, uh, in retrospect, does actually have some pretty good art. I just 
kind of disagreed with the choice of the character designs. So. Yeah, the monsters are all pretty cool, especially the bosses. Oh yeah, the bosses are pretty neat. So so I started playing it, and then my second objection initially was I was like, oh, the combat's not all that deep. It's a platformer, which. I mean, if you play Dark Souls, obviously the combat is so amazing in that series, right? It's just so perfectly balanced, like so many different and interesting weapons. Uh, the way it, it's really tense, like every every enemy that you fight uh, has a chance to kill you if you like really mess up. And so yeah. my immediate impression of Blood, Salt and Sanctuary was, oh, this is actually kind of shallow by comparison which maybe isn't fair. Maybe that was the trade-off of a 2D game, but I was like, oh, this this is less deep than I would have liked. But as I played it more, I was like, oh, okay, so it still has the dodge rolling king. Um, you still can get kind of taken by surprise by enemies and get Absolutely. cut to shreds by mistake and go, whoops, okay, I died. And I think the... The really important thing is that it has that same aura of mystery that Dark Souls has. And yeah. I don't mean to sit here and constantly compare it to Dark Souls, but... It's almost, almost impossible not to, though. Well, I mean, it's a fair comparison. There are things lifted wholesale from that series oh, yeah. and put whole into cloth, this. Whole cloth. Yeah, and it's... Um, I, you know, I... You shouldn't really, and nobody should have any beef with that. It's like, this is the sincerest form of flattery right here. And I mean, we were already starting to kind of run into games lifting Dark Souls like traits and in like the case of Lords of the Fallen, like kind of like pulling, like just blatantly copying the game. But um, this is even still sort of the first step toward like the Dark Souls formula being molded to a, di a different sort of game, like a 2D platformer. And there's going to be other stuff coming out yeah. this year where it's where it's going to do the same thing. So Wait for the first Dark Souls FPS. <laughs> well, there's going to be like, a, have you guys seen anything about ITER? About the what? There's this indie game, Devolver Digital, I think, is is publishing it. It's a like a 2D pixel art isometric Dark Souls that looks beautiful. I haven't seen anything about that. that oh man, it looks so good. And then there's another 2D um, or another. Another platformer um, sprite pixel base called Death's Gambit that I think was at GDC last week. Um, I've been following it a little bit on Twitter, but so like when it, we're just now starting to see like the 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 real influence kind of manifest of, of the last couple of years. Like there's going to be a lot more copycats and a lot more specifically Dark Souls influenced stuff coming out very soon. Yeah. Um, one comparison God, what I took made. them so long? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Small teams, but I guess. The uh, comparison I made in my review is you have uh, Terraria, which is very much a 2D Minecraft, but it's also its own thing at the same time. And I kind of feel the same way about like uh, Salt and Sanctuary and Dark Souls. Yeah. As I've played more and more Salt and Sanctuary, the, the Metroidvania comparisons are just really unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And it makes me realize, oh my god, so Dark Souls is a Metroidvania, like a 3D <laughs> Metroidvania, and it has been all along. Dude, okay. <laughs> I can't believe I totally missed that. Pretty much, yeah. It's, uh, you know, people have been calling it like the next natural evolution of uh, 
like what a 3D Castlevania would have been. And it's funny because Salton Sanctuary is kind of like <laughs> like pulling back around the the other side of the circle. It's 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 just yeah. <laughs> the other end of the evolution. It's coming back to exactly what Castlevania was in its own way. We've been wanting Igarashi or somebody to make a 2D Castlevania for ages now. And we've more or less gotten it. And it's actually pretty good. Um, Nadia, as uh, someone who really enjoys Metroidvanias, I believe you said, like, mm-hmm. what's your kind of outlook on it? How, how well does it do the genre? Uh, it does it quite well. Um, it, it's hard to, to really explain unless you play it for yourself. But it's, uh, to be honest, my, my favorite Metroidvania is still by far Symphony of the Night and then like Super Metroid. Um, but it's a... Uh, it's, it's definitely adds to the the experience just going back and like finding old secrets and new pathways in, in areas we've already explored. Uh, it does the job pretty well. Yeah, I think that the I, I'm a, I'm a fan of the level design just in the sense that it all kind of comes together pretty well. It, it does come together quite nicely. Uh, even later Castlevania games kind of had everything kind of randomly smushed together at times, but this game isn't like that. Everything does make sense. Yeah, it does the Dark Souls thing where you will get to a certain point and then you'll find a door and you'll open the door and you'll be like, oh, okay, I'm back to this area. So now I've opened up a shortcut so I can easily get there. Yeah, and that's very, very handy for a game that this, that has this level of difficulty. And also a game that doesn't have a map. <laughs> yes, it really, really needs a map. Um, I have a question for you two, actually. Do you know what difference it makes, what patron god you, you select? I, I'm not sure. Uh, this is something I had to learn the hard way. Is that uh-huh. um, um, the different the different creeds? Um, okay, so the game has this mechanic where, like, you basically pick a god at the beginning that you sort of worship, right? And so right. every and if, if anybody's played a Souls game, they sort of know this. But like, when you when you find like a safe place, this sanctuary is where you basically pray to this god and you refill all your health potions and stuff like that. Um, one of the cooler mechanics in the game, which is totally obliquely explained so you've got to like true dark souls fashion true dark souls fashion (laughs) right that you got to stumble through it yourself is that like you can find these little stone idols kind of strewn about the world or sometimes they drop drop from enemies but you can um basically make an offering to your your god at one of these sanctuaries and have like a merchant or a blacksmith or something show up in your sanctuary which is really cool um, so the different gods that you pray to, the different merchants will sell different things. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Um, um I'm sure there's other stuff to it that I just, or no one's really figured out yet, but like as the magic class, like as the melee class, it really didn't matter, or at least I didn't mm-hmm. find that it did, but like, um, different merchants and under different gods, they sell better spells early on. So like if you oh. pick. Yeah, like you picked the wrong god, you're you're hamstringing yourself right away. Yeah, because I picked like the god of love and mercy. I can't remember what her name was, and the guy. Yeah, me too. The guy who met me on the shore was like, "Oh man, good luck with that." <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have a tough time here. Yeah, but I didn't really, <laughs> I didn't really notice any difference. I just noticed that there were other gods, and uh, mm-hmm. I was just w- wondering which ones were best. I was given, best. I was given a candelabra to start. I yeah, picked- you chose the three then. Yeah, I, I was given a candelabra and I was like, okay, you're like worshiping the three or something. I'm like, uh, sweet, okay. 
And well, that didn't really that mean, mean? <laughs> I was like, that doesn't really mean anything to me. But then I went to another uh, area, another sanctuary, and they were like, would you like to convert to our religion? And I was like, I don't know who you are, and <laughs> I'm probably not going to convert. So so I found a couple of the candelabra religions or sanctuaries, and I've been using those the most. Um, and the one with the other religion I've discovered, I've learned that apparently if you convert to another religion, you will get a sin Mm -hmm. and then you can't convert to another religion for a while. So (laughs) uh, choose wisely. Yeah. Um, If you go, well, you can heal anywhere and you can level up anywhere, no matter what religion you are. But like you can't make offerings to these gods at um, sanctuaries that don't, that aren't part of the same creed that you are. So, like, if you're part of the three, the one with the little candelabra, you can't go to, like, the blacksmith religion or whatever and and say, okay, I want to put, like, a teleporter here or I want to get a merchant here or something like that unless you convert to their religion. In which case, mm-hmm. when you when you do that, if you go back to your old place, like, you, you, you say, okay, I'm going to be part of whatever god you're worshiping or whatever. If you go back to your old, old spot, they might not sell you stuff or they won't let you do like the, the merchants that you had already set up there. They won't let you do certain things anymore unless you like go to a certain character and have your sins forgiven and stuff like that. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty cool mechanic, but um, kind of getting back to what you were saying earlier, Kat, that like this game really has a really, a, a very good sense of like place and, and adventure and mystery to it. Like just like the souls games, like if you're, you can play it and you can have a great time with it, even if you've never played a Souls game, if, if you've never, if you're just into platforms, like like Nadia, her review yeah, really exactly. kind of hit it on the head. Yeah. Um, but to really get the most out of it, you got to do a little homework. You got to start like digging through wikis and getting involved with the community and stuff to try to yeah, figure I out this Yeah, I think I pointed that out in my review too. It's, I said it's the kind of game that like, obviously when I reviewed it, there wasn't much of a community to get to. Right, there yeah. But I said, just looking at it, it's really the kind of game that you could uh, go onto Reddit, for example, and say, hey, I have a question about this. What have you found out about it? And that's why Dark Souls has become enduringly popular, because it's the kind of game that fosters that kind of community where people are sitting around unraveling the mystery of what the heck is going on with all of these mechanics? I do not know. It's the fourth grade playground. It really is. (laughs) Oh No, that is a perfect analogy, actually. Yeah. And then also Salt and Sanctuary is a lot like Dark Souls and that is quite punitive. If you <laughs> die, uh, you will lose all of your salt, salt being one of the two currencies. Uh, this game also has gold. Mm-hmm. So, And then you won't lose all of your gold. You will lose like 150 gold because like a mysterious cleric or somebody will drag you back to the last sanctuary that you visited. It's very nice of them. I will say that one of the things that I like about the sanctuary is that it kind of combines the best aspects of the bonfire and the Fireling Shrine in that it serves as a hub and then also is a place where you can set up merchants and everything Mm -hmm. uh, to your heart's content. And it also fits really nicely with the overall theme of the game. So uh, well done with them. Well done with that. Good job. And uh, one thing. Oh, I'm sorry, John. I didn't mean to talk to you. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, one thing I really appreciate about the sanctuaries is that, um, of course, when you use it, one, your healing items uh, refill, your potions. But if you, they, those healing items vary depending on what 
god, what, what god the shrine is dedicated to. Uh, for example, um, I at one point found a shrine that was like to some tree god. And instead of getting potions, uh, I got like red grass. It served the same purpose, as far as I know, but it just uh, it's just a little detail that I appreciate that it changed. I have actually just found out what that means. I, I found this out a couple of days ago. So oh, okay. you um, and I personally had to look this up and then do some experimentation on it myself. But like, um, you, OK, you can get an idol, an offering idol called like the leader, the mm -hmm. stone leader. And so when you give yes, that to yeah, so when you give that to your your sanctuary, um, like a, a little person will show up and give you jobs like collect. Yes three of these these like killed enemy drops or something like that which you can you can trade for um like one more healing potion or a stamina refilling potion which are super yeah. important for for ma magic classes by the way yeah it would be <laughs> um or like something that'll like imbue your weapon with fire or whatever but anyway like let's say you 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 go through this entire work list of stuff, this this fetch questy kind of thing, and then you just load up on extra potions. If you switch religions, so these are basically the the um, uh, I can't remember what they call it in Dark Souls now. Jeez, um, this is terrible. Um, covenants. Covenants, right? Sorry, John. Give me I your, know. Give me yeah. your Dark Souls fan license right uh, now. The Blood God is furious with me. Um, so if you were to switch religions it's your healing potion count is going to go back down to whatever the base healing potion count oh, is that you unlocked. That's good to know. Yeah. So mm. there's always going to be a trade-off. Mm -hmm. So here's what I'm kind of wondering. Is there a social kind of function to this game where you can like drag in people from online? Because I know there seems to be some kind of co-op function because I got a sword into yeah, my so sanctuary I. and i was trying to be like all right well i have an ai companion now right nope right <laughs> yeah no okay as far as i know it's only local multiplayer and sometimes yeah. you see other players and you're in sanctuaries but yeah otherwise it's not it's a very lonesome game right okay so you see other players in your sanctuary are those actual other players yes i think so yeah and are the messages left by other players too yeah yeah, yeah. how do you leave a message um, uh, it's a certain item that you get. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget what it's called. Yeah, you get it pretty early on, but I yeah. it's I I never once used it. Well, it's pretty helpful for me because I keep encountering like there's a secret passage here, trap yeah, here, it, and I'm like some people oh. are really nice and they tell you like oh there's a trap here, there's a sanctuary here. Uh, some people are jerks. I once had someone say like oh go forward for a big surprise or whatever, and it was the Queen of Smiles, and I had no idea. Oh. <laughs> Or so fall of off this cliff, you'll be fine. No, yeah, okay. you'll fly. <laughs> With the Queen of Smiles, I found a message that said, "Use holy, um, use holy damage, like yeah. all holy damage." And I'm like, "Oh, that's a good pro tip. Thank you, anonymous <laughs> person." And, and that's like a thing that they do in Dark Souls as well. But I, I, I don't know if I've ever told this story on the podcast. My most unfortunate Dark Souls moment was when I came upon a sign saying, don't trust the person around the corner. Mm. And I found somebody behind bars and they were like, yo. And I was like, kill you. Kill, kill, kill the untrustworthy person. And then I discovered they were a merchant. <laughs> <laughs> and I was oh, like, dear. oh. 
Okay, because I, I don't know if it was the case in Dark Souls 2 and 3, but in the original Dark Souls, if you just randomly started hacking at a dude, you would permanently aggro them. Yep. And it really sucked because you would basically have to start over in order to get certain things that you wanted oh. from them. Yep. So, yeah, so these signs are a double-edged sword, and it's good to see that that tradition continues into Sultan's Sanctuary. There's also, um, sometimes, if you can see where someone died, another player, like, they'll have a headstone there, and if you, like, hit it, they'll their bodies will tumble out. And uh, sometimes you see them in the background just kind of hanging there and whatnot. Because when I started playing the game before it was released, like, you had, like, generic characters hanging at, like, at the doorway at the start of the festering banquet. But once other people started to play, I noticed those generic characters turned into, like, player characters. It was kind of eerie in a way. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah. All right, so here's the question that I have for you two. One of the things that I really like about Dark Souls is that it starts out gloomy, but there are certain places that are, like, really lush, or, like, you'll find these amazing vistas or that kind of thing. And so it does actually really vary up the the, the different environmental pieces. Uh, as someone who finds the the kind of black and white gloom of Salt and Sanctuary really oppressive, is that also the case? Um, I find that as you get not too much further into the game from the beginning, uh, it, things do lighten up quite a bit. Like you end up in a in a forest, for example. Uh, I love the Castle of Storms. It's just gorgeous. Like, there's a, a thunderstorm going on in the background. But, cool. Uh, yeah, uh, like I said, when I when I set, when I I play the game on, the, on my stream, I had a lot of people telling me, oh, wow, this game looks like crap. And I'm like, well, it, it does get a lot better. It, it is easier to see after a while. Um, I did mention, of course, at the start, I'd like for that grayness to be kind of lightened up a bit because I, sometimes you can't see that well. But uh, it, it is it does get a little bit more uh, pretty. Definitely has that Xbox 360 Indies look mm -hmm. uh, in the yeah. early going, which makes sense given its pedigree. Yeah. Um, so. the, there's a lot of caves in this game, there especially is. later on, and they, they can get to be a pretty samey. Um, you have to use your torch yes. through kind of a lot of that stuff. and um, I mean, you can get other items that light rooms and stuff without it, but... There are some some neat lighting effects for a 2D game like this, but it's I was not really blown away by um, really a lot of the backgrounds in, in, as far as like cave diving is concerned. But um, yeah, there's there's some cool lush backgrounds in, in the rest of it, like the, the forest level that you were seeing, Nadia. That's pretty yeah. neat looking. The, the Castle of Storms looks great. Um, there's a, a nighttime scene about halfway through the game, like in between two sort of dungeons that looks really, really cool. But yeah, it's for the most part, especially once you kind of get come to grips with how big the world is and how many like shortcuts you're really opening up around the place. Um, it, fe it, it feels a, a little bit redundant in that respect that like, okay, I'm, I'm going through another cave that looks similar to this last cave. And the only real difference is like the sconce that this torch was on is different than the one in the last cave kind of thing. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Graphics are not the game's high point. I will admit to that. It looks I'm okay. Not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not holding it against the, the development team at all, but mm. um, it's just, uh, 
when I think of Castlevania Symphony Night, I think of like how gorgeous the library was, the outer wall, yeah, you know, just the underground. Even the underground, which is like supposed to be dark and damp, has this gorgeous, just kind of bluish tint to it that I always loved. Hmm. All right. So, and it's really, I mean, honestly, even though we're we've kind of badmouthed the graphics a little bit early, like. It, this is a two-person team. Like there was one person doing the art. I think it's a husband and wife team. One person did the art. The other person did the, the planning and the programming. And I think they outsourced little things to other people. Like in scope of that, this game is is a pretty, pretty incredible big accomplishment. Yeah, I had I had no idea it was like a two-person team. That's that's insane. Yeah, they they. This is a really big game with a lot going on and and a lot of underlayered systems. So I'm. I, I even though I the graphics really aren't for me, I, I can't possibly take that away from them. Yeah, I like even when I did my review, I really didn't ding for the graphics. Mm-hmm. Like except maybe as I said, the darkness being a little bit too hard to see, I would like the option to adjust that. But it definitely doesn't really detract from the gameplay in any significant way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And given that it was apparently only a two person team, it's really remarkable the scope of this game. Mm-hmm. It's a big well-designed game with a lot of yeah. mechanics with good good combat and everything uh it 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 feels like a much larger game than would be able to be within the abilities of a two-person team so hats off to them yeah totally yeah absolutely one thing that i wanted to kind of finish on the the skill tree what do you guys yes. think of that um i i don't know how it compares to dark souls trees like i've heard I've heard like it's pretty much the same thing, but I really like the way that, and I mentioned this in my review again, you are not really bound to any one class. Like, for example, since I started as a hunter, like my earliest upright options were like dexterity and whatnot. But if I really wanted to, I could have easily swung the other way and like early on started like leveling up spears and uh, swords and two-handed swords and, and magic if I really wanted to. Yeah, I was disinclined to get away too far away from the hunter like stuff, the base yeah, stuff. I really I, like it. I, I feel like maybe the assassin would have been a good subclass. I was thinking of that, but uh, I, I just got really addicted to the whip. <laughs> the whip is really good, and I then like also it. the bow is a sub weapon for like yeah. distance attacks. I was gonna laugh like Titus because this is basically the spear grid <laughs> from Final Fantasy X. That's what I was gonna say. It's very spear it's, spear grid. Yeah. It's which is cool. Um, I guess the the main difference between anybody that's played Dark Souls and this is that, like, when you level up in those games, you, you don't have to like dig through a tree to find stuff. You just say, okay, I want to put a point in strength, or I want to put it in endurance, or something like that. And then, in this, you're you're sort of guided to. toward, yeah, you gotta you're you're sort of guided toward one specific end, but you can certainly jump around and and there are points in the tree where like even though you're like really knee deep into going like pro spear. There, there's a branch that goes into like where the swords are. So you don't have to start at the bottom if you want to get high level swords at this at yeah. the point in the game that you're at. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I'm pointing out for any potential players out there, uh, certain stats, like for example, uh, stamina, dexterity, you don't just open them up. You have to kind of fill them out like, for example, like a, if you unlock dexterity, uh, you can level it up two more times before the thing is maxed out and you have to move on to the next branch. But that's just a, a point that came to me a little bit late. 
So, some Dark Souls is obviously well known for its pretty amazing boss battles. John, do these boss battles in Salt and Sanctuary stack up? I think so. some of them, yeah. Some of them are really pretty well thought out. Um, the thing with the as the Souls series has gone on, um, boss battles kind of started in Demon Souls, being very like, okay, here's the boss, here's all the things that they do, learn how to fight it, and just overcome. But like in Dark Souls 2 and in Bloodborne, um, it took very much the sort of Final Fantasy approach in that once you get the, the boss down to a certain level of health, it either gets way more aggressive or it just kind of bursts out with new movesets and things. And Salt and Sanctuary does that too. So there's really not a, a drastic change in movesets for bosses, but let's say you're fighting um, that dragon that you were mentioning earlier, Nadia, that yeah. once you get it down to... To, to 50% before that um, it would telegraph its moves pretty clearly so if you're yeah. playing a very roll heavy dexterity character you can you can see where you have to roll out of out of the way to, to avoid damage and stuff like that but yeah. as it gets closer to death the lag between moves gets a lot shorter so it doesn't really give you a whole lot of opportunity to think quick to think methodically so you really got to move and like act on your feet a little bit quicker um, yeah I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, even the first boss, I uh, when I did uh, my second playthrough on the, the stream, I found him to be one of the more difficult ones because uh, he really ramps up his moves once you get him down to about like one quarter of health. And since it's early in the game, uh, you don't really have the, the stats or the protection that you might need. Yeah, you just got to figure out how to put up with that, you know? It's, yeah. You can't, you can't just overpower a boss. and No, it doesn't work out very well. Right. <laughs> There's a boss um, in, in one of the caves. I can't remember what he's called, but he's in Hagger's Cavern or Hagger's Cave. And he's he's the Bloodborne boss because, like, it's it it's a character with that kind of, um, I can't place what sort of hat it is, but it's got a hat, it's got a gun, it's got a sword. It's, I mean, this person's, like, lifted out of the Bloodborne kind of aesthetic. But um, not only do you have to deal with, like, their moves getting a lot faster and them being more aggressive once they get a little bit closer to death, but also range. So it'll, it mm -hmm. will fight you at a, at a, a much longer range if you keep them that way. So you have to be cognizant of, um, not only are they going to shoot me with a gun, but once I kill or once I start to hurt them a little bit, they're just going to sit there and just keep firing. And if I don't yeah. have enough stamina to either block all that stuff or roll at the right time, then you're just going to take a chest full of bullets and that's going to be it. <laughs> chest full of bullets. <laughs> what a way to go. What a way to go. So Salt and Sanctuary, uh, we all seem pretty positive on it. I will say that I kind of have changed my tune a bit on it since uh, spending some more time with it. I, I think that it's more than just a carbon copy of Dark Souls. I think it does actually a pretty impressive job of capturing the essence of the appeal of Dark Souls, which is that sense of mystery, that sense that you could die any time, that uh, large, interconnected, and interesting world that's fun to explore, and then adds to it with stuff like the sanctuaries and the religion. So I, yeah. I think that overall, I think this is a really well-thought-out game, and... If you can get past the character art, which, I mean, I think that's a pretty small consideration, I think that this is absolutely a game worth checking out. 
I think uh, even if you haven't played uh, Souls or Bloodborne like myself, it's just a satisfying platformer, and that's all there is to it. It gives you a real sense of accomplishment and advancement. And God, we've been needing a new Metroidvania, like, forever. Oh, gracious, I know. We're never going to get Metroid Dreads, so just, well, you can <laughs> might as well go with Salt and Sanctuary, right? Might as well. We could John, do a lot worse. We could do a we lot We really worse. could. This John. is a really good um, appetizer for Dark Souls 3. and Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of that. Yeah, and honest, like, the timing, I'm sure, was... <laughs> the release of, of this game, I'm sure, was timed specifically for that, and it was perfectly placed and honestly this other these other indie games that i mentioned earlier in the podcast like if they're half as good as this game we are in a, in for a really really good year if this is the kind mm. of stuff that you if even if you're not really into it if you're just kind of curious and want to dip your toes into something like this there's going to be different avenues for that not just a dark souls or a bloodborne so i'm super high on this game i'm very very happy with it yeah, I don't really have any plans to play Dark Souls 3, so this will be an adequate replacement for me. You are breaking my heart. Don't say that. You should <laughs> oh play goodness. it. Yeah, you know, every time I play a Dark Souls game since the original, I beat I beat the original. But ever since then, it's like Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne, I like them both in their own way. But like there, there inevitably is a point where I get where I'm just like, I can't beat this. I don't want to beat this. I don't have the time or the patience for this. <laughs> I give up. I quit. Bye. And Sultan Sanctuary, I mean, it has some of those same qualities, but it feels a lot more manageable. And that might be because it's in 2D. Yeah. And it's shorter. And yeah. the world isn't as confusing because, holy crap, when you add a third dimension, it's so much easier to get lost. I just have a much easier time tracking where exactly i am in the world of salt and sanctuary so like taken all together it's like oh like i i can play this game like i i feel like i can handle this whereas like i play say dark souls 3 and i'm just like this game is completely overwhelming to me at this point <laughs> and maybe that makes me less of a gamer whatever i don't care i beat the original dark souls so oh, you've F got off. nothing to prove it's okay exactly so so yeah, I mean, maybe I'll get to Dark Souls 3 eventually, but for now, Salt and Sanctuary has been a nice filling little meal. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm here with Brian Hines, who is the director of Tyranny, a city and new RPG, which was announced last week. Brian, welcome to the show, and... Well, first of all, so the, the premise behind Tyranny <laughs> is essentially it's not Luke Skywalker. You're not rising up to fight the evil empire. You are the empire. You are the one who knocks. So tell me, like, how did you come up with this concept? How did how did you decide to go to the dark side? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's great to finally be able to start talking about the game to people and getting the word out there of everything we've been working on for a while. Um, Dark Secret, the... this is the second take. We lost the first interview. <laughs> uh, hopefully this is better than the last. Indeed. Uh, so the idea for Tyranny has actually been kicking around Obsidian for, for years now. It's, it's gone through a lot of iterations, but I think the, the, the core of the idea, the, the idea of uh, adventuring in a world where evil has won, has been something that's stuck the entire time. It's something that I think really like resonates with people and has been more and more interesting. I know that for me personally, as I've 
as I've gotten older, the the idea of being the the hero on the side of good and overcoming evil, like, it's a fun fantasy, but I think there's like, a lot of times we miss out on uh, the other side of the story. Like, how do you survive in a world that's that's not the absolute good and evil, black and white, that's all about shades of gray, where even the, the choices that seem right have consequences that may not work out the way you initially thought, or the the path that may at first seem evil actually is for what we call the greater good, or at least that's what you might use to justify it to yourself. The greater good. Sorry, I was just thinking about Hot Fuzz right there. Yeah, no, it's... Oh. A... <laughs> There you go. Uh, you know, it's an intriguing concept. What are some of the... Uh, there are obviously a lot of possibilities <clears throat> in terms of design and themes and everything that this opens up, this whole going evil. Uh, what are some of the things that you're finding as you make this game? So I think definitely it's one of the, uh, one of the things we've consistently found is the, the interest level of the choices we can give players that... Like when first thing around the design team brainstorming ideas for quests, we'll we'll get to a point where it's like, oh, this is here's a choice we can give them, and then someone will chime in. It's like, well, what if we really like turn the screws this way? And it's like, oh, that's that's really interesting. That gives a very different take on the story of what's going on. And and I mean, obsidian games we love giving like hard moral choices for players, and I think in this setting of, of a world where evil won, like we had, there's a bit more freedom to give more complex choices that we don't have to cater so exclusively to the oh I want to be the good player. There always has to be the the paladin choice where I do good for good's sake because I'm good. And have I mentioned that I'm good? Uh, we don't really have to play on that as much. We can look for shades of gray and interesting nuance in the choices that we give players. So I think. That's really been the thing that, as we've been working on the game, we've been embracing more and more just this idea that it's it's okay to give the the bad options. That's a a different fantasy for people that are people are excited about exploring that and not having to live in that world. That I think a lot of games end up falling into where good and evil means you're either playing a raging psychopath or a doormat. So in this one, the sliding scale isn't chaotic evil to lawful good, it's chaotic evil to lawful evil? Pretty much, yes. I mean, players who want to play the good character, I mean, uh, pretty much every RPG, when you look at how it breaks down, the majority of players pick the good option. They want to be a good character. So that's still possible in, in Tyranny. Like, we don't want to say, oh no, you have to be a bastard, because not everybody is comfortable with that. If you are, you'll have a lot of fun, but you can still choose to make some of those uh, those good moral choices. It's just going to be harder because you're surrounded by bastards the entire time. So one of the like the main conceits of tyranny is that you're kind of you're surrounded by these factions. You have to work within them and everything. Um, another thing about kind of being evil is that there's a lot of there's usually a lot more political intrigue and in stories that take place within the evil empire, and it seems like you're kind of going in that direction. How much are you are you like playing up at that aspect? Are, are there going to be like a lot of really good court scenes where you get to throw your rivals under the bus? Yeah, you're going to have several of those. Uh, definitely, I, I think uh, we talked about that. Your role in the game is is what we call a, a fate binder. You're you exist to 
mediate disputes between the different factions within the evil empire. So your word, you get to have the final say in a lot of cases, but sometimes you may get your decisions appealed to your boss, who is the uh, the Archon of Justice, the, the, the final word of Kairos Law, and uh, you have to justify the choices that you've made, and you can throw people under the bus, you can backstab people, like, well, there's a there's a quest in the game we were looking at recently where somebody can actually ask you for help in uh, resolving a dispute, and you can demand a bribe from that person and then turn around and rule against them, and they get outraged that you took their money but didn't follow through, and you can say, hey, this is, you shouldn't have tried to bribe a fate binder. And you can, there's all those little moments where you can really just turn things around on what the traditional expectations are. And I think I love the, I guess you're saying that the aspect of evil where it's all about different factions that are fighting each other. Like, I think there's a lot of the idea that people have that evil destroys itself from within. And in Kairos Empire, that's definitely that you have different groups of uh, people and factions that have different opposing agendas and how you navigate that environment, I think leads to a lot of really interesting quest decisions. So you're basically a judge from Final Fantasy XII. Yeah, we uh, the, the analogy we're using was Judge Dread. You get Judge to Dredd. Uh, yeah bring your brand of justice to the game. Did you ever play Final Fantasy Tactics Advanced? Uh, not advanced. No, I played. Uh, I can't remember which of the five that I played Tactics, uh, but not advanced. Oh, I won't digress too much, but in Tactics Advance, a judge can actually do a red card and send one of your characters <laughs> off the field, so I kind of like that idea for Tyranny. That is awesome. <laughs> so, playing into this kind of alliance, this thing, like, how does... So you can make deals, you can kind of align with different factions, even though you're supposed to be an impartial judge, which sounds a lot like our current legal system, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Um, how does this like all play out? So there are like multiple different endings and paths that can go that can take place. Like, like how far down the rabbit hole are you going with the with the possibilities here? So we definitely uh, want to have like multiple options for the player, and uh, we're, we're not doing the, the the binary. You can choose A or B. Like there's there's several different factions you can choose to ally with, and different uh, paths through the game. So each alliance you make gives you access to quests that you wouldn't have available to you if you didn't make that alliance. So uh, the goal is that if you come back to Tyranny and uh, play it multiple times and make different alliances, you actually see a different story and a different side of events that may be common on certain quest lines. You get a different motivation and experience of what's going on there. So playing through with one faction, maybe it's your uh, defending against this, uh, this attack from another faction. And it seems like, okay, this is, we're establishing our foothold in the area, we're, we're fighting off our enemy, that makes sense. But then when you play through on a different faction alliance, you realize, oh no, they're, they're invading that village because it's hard, they're harboring a fugitive murderer. But your allies didn't tell you that part of the story when you were playing through <laughs> the first time. Did you work on Fallout New Vegas? Uh, no, I did not. I was, actually mm. was not at Obsidian while uh, they were working on New Vegas. I did the guide for Fallout New Vegas, and... That was an interesting perspective on faction design because, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, there are like three factions in that game, or two factions, I think, but two major factions. And mm-hmm. the way it plays out is that you can choose to join one or the other at pretty much any time, and then you follow their missions all the way through until the very end. 
And so I had to play through both, and I discovered that a lot of the missions were pretty much the same, just maybe from an opposite perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's that, and on the one hand, like it made a lot of sense from a design perspective, because otherwise you're just going to let things get completely out of hand. <laughs> but on the other hand, yes. it like, started to feel a little bit of artificial. Um, mm-hmm. How do you avoid that when you're designing it? Like, is there kind of a similar approach where it's like, oh, here's the same kind of mission, but you're seeing it from one side or the other? I think there's some element of that. I think definitely when we were looking at the design of, of Tyranny, we were looking at how like the factions played out in, in New Vegas and other games like that, and we really wanted to make sure that when we were sending people to the same location for different factional quest lines, that they had very different motivations for going there. Like, uh, in the example I... I just tossed out the idea of, in one side, you're defending a village against an attack, and the other side, you are the attackers assaulting the village. Like, uh, gameplay, there, obviously, there's, there's combat involved in both, but the motivations and the reactivity that comes from that is very different depending on which uh, faction alliance you're, you're siding with. How much can you avoid combat? Because I know that's like, a lot of people, say, complained about Fallout 4, for example, that mm-hmm. it went, it skewed really heavily toward action. Um, and people want to talk their way out of like conflicts and the, everything. How how is that in your game? So it's it's not uh, you can't one hundred percent avoid combat. I mean, we put a lot of time and effort into the combat system, and we wouldn't want to uh, shortcut that entirely. But we definitely have moments that uh, we showed one example when we were doing the demoing the game for you at the GDC, where uh, you can avoid some smaller combats using skills you develop for your character. And in others, you may not be able to avoid the entire combat, but you may be able to weaken the encounter by intimidating one or two people and causing them to run away or tricking them with other skills. Um, so definitely we want conversations and like, di- diplomacy or intimidation to really play into the difficulty level. So somebody who wants to focus more on uh, conversational options and approaches can get an advantage in combat that may make the encounter easier for them. Can you go rogue? Uh, yeah, you can. You absolutely can go rogue. You can decide to kill everyone and watch the world burn. That's absolutely an option. I was talking to a friend of mine about that, and we were talking about the possibility of essentially going all leather face and just grabbing a chainsaw and going after the people. And I, I kind of reflected that as a design choice, that can be kind of interesting. But in real life, somebody who does that, basically, there is no story in that. They're just a maniac. Mm-hmm. Yes. But people want that option, so... Yeah. So, there it is. It's always there in the game. But... I would say, yeah, I think definitely it's one of those things where uh, it's it's an interesting balancing act because, yeah, it's people want to be able to attack anyone they see. It's like, oh, this guy's uh, mouthing off to me. I want to just go ahead and kill him. But we have to make sure that there's still enough of a story you get from that that it doesn't feel like, oh, this game is boring. There's no story. It's just a lot of combat, even though you're choosing to attack everybody every time the second you see them. So a lot of it is uh, giving the player options where they have that, where maybe they not necessarily like, attack outright, but be able to put someone in their, in their place. Because, again, like your role in the game is one of authority. So even if you don't attack outright, you can still tell people who are essentially your subordinates to like shut up and sit down and stop bothering you. Did you ever play Return to Zork? Yes, I did a long time ago now, but yes. It was such a weird and funny adventure game because you could kill everybody. It's just Mm -hmm. that 
uh, well, the Arbiter of Justice would come and steal all, would take all of your equipment. But if you dropped all of your equipment outside a house, you could come back for it afterward. <laughs> yes. So you could be the, the silent killer. But anyway, uh, so how does reputation play into all of this alliance, into this alliance system? Yeah, uh, reputation into, I mean, uh, we basically build on the reputation systems that we've done in Obsidian for a lot of our games, where you have uh, different, each reputation has different axes that it, it feels about the player. Like they can be uh, favorable towards you or angry towards you, and those are, those are independent things you can build. And the thing we're trying to add with Tyranny is that as you build up those reputations, it actually unlocks abilities for your character. So whether you get a faction to love you or hate you, you get new things you can do in combat as a result, and it makes your play experience different. So, again, going back into the alliances, we wanted to make sure that if in one playthrough you choose to ally with, with one faction, your play experience of uh, just the minute-to-minute combat is going to be different than when you choose to ally with a different faction. I always have such a hard time choosing between factions because I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> I want to be able to make everybody happy, but I'm guessing that won't be the case in here. I'm going to have to choose somebody. Yeah, there will be. A, you will need to make an alliance in order to get the. I mean, you again, you could choose to go it alone and watch the world burn, which is its own special form of fun. But uh, if you want to see several of the different storylines, you will uh, make an alliance with one of the factions. So you showed this to me a couple days before, well, a few hours actually before you formally announced it. <laughs> And you showed me a sequence where, like, on the one side, you're allied with the Scarlet Chorus, and you go into an area that's kind of, well, you know, it's kind of barren and everything, but it's still more or less okay. And then you showed me a sequence where you allied against the Scarlet Chorus, and the land is, like, completely messed up and screwed up and everything. Um, And that kind of intrigued me, because I was like, oh, you have an opportunity to actually change the world. Like, how far do you take that in this game? So, I mean, what... <clears throat> just real quick, just uh, so people know, like that choice of uh, ally and enemy with the chorus, or whether the area is destroyed or pristine, those are two separate, independent choices. So you can have a version where you're allied with the chorus in the more destroyed area as well. Just uh, so the idea with that is, we want the player's choices, especially during character creation. You get to play through how your character was involved in the conquest of the world. Um, you were part of Kairos' armies. You were one of their leaders. And those early choices you make set a lot of that starting state of the game. So when you create a different character, you'll see a different set of events play out in the game from those early choices. And we try to find uh, choices that have different levels of impact. Some of them are, are very large-scale effects, like the, the changing of an entire environment. Some of them are about, okay, you ran into this NPC early on during the conquest, and now he's your enemy in-game because you did something for or against him. Um, so there's like a, a mix of reactivity based on that, uh, mainly because with with any type of game, like generating art is one of the most expensive things you can do. So we had to uh, we we couldn't make every single choice result in like a complete uh, difference of the the art environments you see just for the realities of production, but. We tried to make those moments feel very distinct and very impactful when they happen. My favorite, one of my favorite RPG moments is still when you're, I I don't know, you can choose to blow up Megaton or not in Fallout 3. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, 
Well, you got a big boom, but you sure did lose a lot of quest givers and everything. Sometimes <laughs> it's fun just to do that. Yes, absolutely. So let's move on to the battle system really quickly. I, I found it really interesting. So in the last time I talked to, a, I was talking to Josh Sawyer a couple of weeks ago about Pillars of Eternity, and I was extolling the virtues of a six-player party, and then you guys come along and you announce a four. <laughs> player party uh, what was behind that decision well i think there's a there are several things that were behind that i mean one of the things that we saw with like uh, looking at pillars and how a lot of people played it 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 wasn't actually a six-person party because you'd have characters with uh allied pets or summoned creatures so sometimes that six-person party would result in a lot of characters on screen i think one of our programmers uh, before pillars launched put together a, a party uh, that was full of chanters, all of them summoning skeletons at the mm. beginning of combat to create this just giant horde of allies that just swarmed the enemy. It was it was our own version of a Zerg rush, effectively. Seems uh, pretty reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a ton of fun to watch uh, watch it play out, but it's also, it gets a lot harder to keep track of what's going in combat when you have that many characters performing actions all at the same time. So one of the reasons we decided to go for more of a four-person party is that we kind of wanted our combat to be a little bit more faster-paced than Pillars just inherently. And with going down to four people in the party, it's much easier to keep track of the overall battle. And because we have fewer party members, we can have a smaller number of enemies uh, in the encounters you're facing so that overall the number of actors moving around on screen is less and it's much easier for players to just keep track of everything that's going on and really understand what abilities their their allies are using, of which caster is about to get off a really powerful spell, so you have to go and stop him uh, before he can actually issue that spell. And just the reduced party size has really helped with overall streamlining the flow of combat and making it a much more, uh, a faster-paced, a more approachable experience. Oh no, you used the dreaded word, streamlining. I know, it's just it's an evil thing, isn't it? RPG fans hate streamlining. They want more and more clutter in their systems. Don't you know that? Uh, well, we have a lot of complexity. We, we streamline in some areas, and I, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a magic system geek. I love magic systems and all their complexity and variety, so we, we've added some complexity there for the people who really love uh, delving into magic systems. Hmm. So normally I object to a four-player party because <laughs> it feels like a couple of those... Part, those slots are automatically accounted for and that you have to have well you got to have a healer and you, you probably want an attacking mage and so that leaves room for maybe a tank and maybe a rogue if you are right. able to squeeze somebody in but you guys went with a classless uh, RPG system in that you earn skills just based on what you're using at that time so theoretically especially with the main character you can like have a character who's really good at wielding a sword in one hand and shooting a fireball with the other. And it mm -hmm. strikes me that this makes things a lot more flexible, maybe. Like, you don't have to, uh, you, you to min-max a character quite as much. Like, you can fill a lot of different roles with one character. So I think, I, yeah, absolutely, that. that was one of the, that freedom and flexibility, it, was, it allowed us to go down to a smaller party size. I think you're exactly right that when you have... Uh, a class base that has uh, very defined roles for each class, 
there's at a certain point you need to have whether it's six or five, probably a few more than four, just to give you the ability to have a variety of party members and not feel like you're missing out on a crucial role. Um, one of the things with our classless system is that any character, whether it's your main character or any of your companions, you can start having them use healing magic and you have a healer. Whether that's going to work out great for that specific character based on their attributes and their overall role and ability in combat, that may affect things as well. But you could absolutely um, decide that, hey, I want this character maybe that we on the design team designed to be like a ranged archer, but you know, I really need another, a diff, another healer instead. You can absolutely have them focus more on healing magic and uh, use them in that role in combat. Or you could decide that, you know, my main character, I want to be both a mix of like throwing javelins and also getting up close and personal with like sword and shield when the enemy approaches. Like you can combine those two different skill sets and different play styles very effectively and still add in the ability to throw fireballs if you want or cast lightning bolts. Like, uh, we definitely wanted that that flexibility to have a single character be able to fulfill a couple of roles fairly well and not be uh, strictly defined by a single class definition. Fair to say that this uh, streamlining, uh, this, this decision to make it a classless system and reduce the party size from six to four is an attempt to maybe appeal to a broader audience in Pillars of Eternity? Yeah, I think, I mean, Pillars was very successful at showing that this type of game, uh, the, the Infinity Engine style isometric RPG, there is still a large audience out there that wants to play these games, that is excited about this type of game coming back and getting a resurgence and existing again in, in modern gaming. And I know I was certainly one of those people. Um, but I think with, with Tyranny, you want to see that, okay, we're not... Uh, going for the same level of nostalgia that uh, that Pillars was focused on with their with their Kickstarter and uh, bringing people into the, the crowdfunding for the game. So we're trying to uh, change a few things, see if like with a more like faster paced combat, a smaller party, things that maybe would appeal to a, a slightly broader audience while still having that same core that the people who uh, backed Pillars and loved that game, they'll still find a lot of the same elements in Tyranny that they loved in Pillars. So our hope is that that mix will give us a, a broader audience and then possibly as uh, we develop more of these types of games in the future, uh, that broader audience will also feed into other titles we make. So we'll, we'll grow the, the, the audience for this type of game over time. And console release? Right now we are focusing on, on PC. Uh, I know that there's a lot of a demand for, for console for these games and, it's certainly something that is it's possible like other games have, have done it. It's just a, a good amount of work to get the controls not just functional, but actually feeling good and feeling like it's a good console experience. So that's something that we'll potentially tackle later on, but at least for initial release, the game's going to be on uh, PC, Mac, and Linux. All right, then. Well, I look forward to playing it on the PC regardless, but of course, I know that a lot of our audience would love to have it on console, so mm -hmm. I feel obligated to bring it up. <laughs> I, I love console RPGs as well, so I definitely understand Like, there's being able to sit in your living room on the couch and play a game is a, it's a great experience. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on was companions. Um, what can you tell us about the companions that you've revealed so far? 
so the, our main goal with uh, designing uh, our companions was to basically create those interesting personalities. Like people love the companions of City and Rights for our games. That getting that uh, emotional development as you adventure with the companion over the course of the game, learning more about them. Um, so some of the things that we wanted to add to that for Tyranny is we we try to bring companions into combat a bit more closely in that. Uh, we actually added a set of abilities that we call companion combos that allow your character and a companion to work together to create like powerful effects in combat. And as you build your relationships with your companions, you unlock more and more of these companion combo abilities. Um, so beyond that, we tried to get each of our companions to give you like a different perspective on the world. So uh, you'll have some companions who are used to be members of one of uh, the various armies uh, during Kairos' con conquest of the world, and they don't always get along together very well, and you have to be the one to bring them together and forge them into a cohesive unit. Um, some of them are people who were, at one point, enemies of Kairos, and potentially you could uh, allow them to, to die for their defiance of Kairos or try to rehabilitate them as one of your, your companions. So... It, we definitely wanted to give a lot of different experiences for players beyond uh, the, in the personalities of the companions you find and the uh, the different uh, roles they have in the world and in combat. Will it be possible to miss companions based on the factions that you ultimately align with? Uh, we didn't want you to miss them entirely. Uh, again, there's a lot of work that goes into creating a companion, so we want to make sure that players will at least encounter them during the game. You can absolutely choose not to take a companion with you and not adventure with them during the game at all, and that's absolutely possible for several of the companions, but we wanted to make sure that you would at least run into them along the uh, the, the quest lines of the game. Hmm. Yes, that makes sense. And will there be... Will it be able... Sorry. Will it be possible to romance these companions? No, we don't really have a lot of uh, romantic options in the game. Mainly it was an issue that Writing a believable romance takes a lot of time. It's it's it it's hard to do well. I mean, it'd be very easy just to slap a dialogue option in there that's like, oh, it's sexy times now, but that's really not what people want, and it's not really doing justice to the type of characters we create uh, in our in our games. So, for at least the initial release, we're not going to have uh, romantic options with our companions. Just uh, we had to focus on all the other things we're doing to establish this IP and build this world and these characters, and that just wasn't feasible to do with our, our time frame. It's sexy times now. The hit new RPG yes. by BioWare. <laughs> It'll sell a million copies easily. Oh, heck yeah. People will love that kind of game. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys do with the companions because I think... A really good set of companions is the secret like ingredient to making a great RPG. Like I thought Pillars of Eternity had really particularly strong companions and so did um Fallout New Vegas if I recall correctly. So it'll be so I, I think that if you can kinda hit the companions out of the park it'll really greatly strengthen this game. Yeah, I think definitely as players as we get uh, closer to release we're gonna talk a lot more about who the different companions are and the different perspectives they have on the game. I think we really tried to get a diverse set of opinions so that you'll get very different perspectives on events because like, as you're traveling through the world, your companions are going to be commenting on the choices you make and in some cases challenging you on the decisions that you, you've made. And 
you'll learn a lot more about the world through those interactions. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, everyone's responses to the, the companions as they play through the game. And if you're on watch the world burn mode, you can just be like Bob Gun, and then you shoot them just like in <laughs> Batman 1989. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Last couple <laughs> questions. Um, strongholds are they back? Uh, we so we have a player base. It's not the same stronghold system that Pillars had. It's a uh, it's different for the, the the nature of our game. And we'll go into more detail um, as we get closer to release. Like what I'll say for now is that yes, there is a player base. Yes, you can upgrade it and recruit NPCs to appear in your base. But that's that's all I'll, I'll say right now. All right. Well, I hope that it's a little more crowded than the ones in Pillars of Eternity because I liked the strongholds for the most part in Pillars, but it was always a little strange to walk in and be like, oh, nobody's here, but I supposedly have hired a lot of people to be working for me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think definitely, they, I know that for the, the White March expansion, they've added a lot more uh, content and uh, and focused a lot on and building up the uh, the stronghold and pillars. Like, uh, so I think it's, it's worth going back and checking out again and seeing how it's, how it's changed with the expansion. Okay, and last question. I know that Paradox is publishing you guys, which uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of a natural fit because you guys have the same PR agency. So like in my mind, I'm like, yes. oh yeah, that, that works perfectly. But... But what? But I do find it interesting because Paradox is mostly associated with strategy games, and obviously strategy and RPG go together with like peanut butter and jelly. But mm-hmm. what's Paradox's role in this project? Uh, so Paradox, uh, they're, they're our, our publisher. They're they're funding the game. They're they're handling marketing and distribu- distribution of the game. Um, they've actually been like a great partner to work with because they've they they know that like, we have the expertise for making RPGs and. And they allow us to to bring that to the table, and they're not trying to micromanage or second guess the development of the game. They're just allowing us to make a great game, and then they will uh, distribute it and release it to the the press, so the public. That's so it's been a, a great working relationship so far with them. Excellent. I'm sure that they would bring a lot of really good insight into like the choices and everything that you make because mm-hmm. they just have such a fantastic grasp of systems and everything, and they bring just a totally new and different and interesting perspective to that front. I think absolutely. Plus, like the, a lot of the people we work with directly at Paradox, they're, they're fans of the Infinity Engine games, the, the Icewind Dales, the, the Baldur's Gate. Like, like us, they played all those games growing up, and they, they believe very strongly in how amazing that gaming experience is and want to be part of bringing that back to a more modern audience. So it's been really great as we've been developing the game that, They'll they'll see a build and they'll we'll get feedback from them and a lot of times like we'll be like when you're working on a game you can get a little bit of tunnel vision as far as like what oh this thing needs to happen next and that thing then the next thing after that and just not really it taking a step back and seeing okay what does the current state of the game look like so having somebody with fresh eyes come in and say oh this part of the game just really isn't working right now and it's hurting my ability to understand everything else so. Having those like just sanity checks periodically has been very valuable. All right, Brian Hines, your game Tyranny will be out in 2016, so sometime later this year. I'm really looking forward to playing it. Thanks for being a good sport and coming back on the show to do a second interview, and I look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely, can't wait. Alright, 
that's the end of our episode Acts of the Blood God is a podcast of US Gamer. Check us out on usgamer.net. Lots of great post-GDC coverage and things like that. You can find the podcast itself on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere that podcasts are sold. Do me a favor, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. It kind of helps us expand our reach and spread the gospel of the Blood God, whom I've apparently never met, but whatever. If you want to drop me a line or leave a comment on the episode, you can reach me on Twitter at the underscore catbot, or you can drop me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Always interested to hear your thoughts, and if you have an interesting question or comment, I may read it on a future episode of the show. Next week, I actually don't have any idea what I'm going to be talking about. However, I am going to be doing an event. and Hopefully, I can score a pretty neat interview. Beyond that, I think Nadia wants to drop by and talk about Stardew Valley. So we may finally be doing that. So we'll see. But it's kind of a crazy period right now for me. Um, but I don't think I've missed a, a week with the podcast yet. So we may be able to continue the streak. But in any case, thanks to Nadia and John for coming on the show and also to Brian Hines for talking about tyranny, which I'm really looking forward to. I've been Kat Bailey and until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.